So, uh, hey, Tyler. Hey, Colin. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Welcome back to the Nameless Show about stuff. Yeah, one day after we record, like, our 10th episode, maybe we should get a name. Yeah. Well, you know, you let the, you let the product name itself. It's like having a kid, right? Yeah, exactly. That's why my kid is named Chihuahua. <laughs> so this week we were thinking of talking about support. And that's, that's the big question is, do indie developers need to offer customer support? I mean, there are famous developers, don't want to name names, Marco, who have great products, Overcast, who simply don't reply to email. And, and it works for them. Right. Well, and I think he's, he's gone to the point of saying explicitly that he doesn't provide support. So it's not that, you know, he has a support email address. He doesn't answer. He literally, within the app, you can offer feedback, but you, there's no button that says get help. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's an interesting approach and I think it is, uh, especially on the iOS side, a pretty valid approach. I mean, it's really hard if you're selling an app for a dollar 99 to start to think through the economics of spending a half an hour helping someone. And it begs the question are for the most part, are apps on iOS complicated enough that they would require lengthy support sessions? I mean, Overcast is a complex app, but at the end of the day, it just plays podcast. And if you can't figure out as a user how to use that, I don't know what more Marco could really offer. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. And I think in terms of most of the apps that I use, either they're simple enough for their dollar ninety nine, or they're a component of a larger platform. You know, if if it's Evernote and I'm having trouble with the Evernote app. I sort of have a higher expectation of them because they're running this ecosystem and, yeah. you know, it has cloud syncing and all of that. Um, but I'm not sure uh, because, y- you know, there are certainly a lot of customers, even in, in the sort of price range of apps that we work with, where it's a losing proposition to be supporting them. And, and I kind of wonder about how you make that distinction. Do you know of anyone on the desktop side who's taken quite the stance that Marco's taken? No, no one. All the, any developers I know that I personally talk to, they all have fantastic customer support because, and this leads into our conversation, I think that's really the lifeblood of your business is being proactive with your customers and keeping them your customers. Because as an indie, you can't afford to lose anybody. I certainly tend to agree. Um, and I think especially on the Mac side, I would be really surprised to be dealing with a company that took quite the black and white stance in terms of support. Now, um, there are certainly some companies that offer different levels of, of support. And right. especially once you go up the chain, ironically, like uh, to higher end products, especially when you move into non-indie products, you're going to be dealing with very different support structures. Um, what do you see for an indie developer as the main reasons for doing that kind of support? Well, I think it comes down to before and after you make a sale. Before you make a sale, like for my app, if somebody is having legitimate trouble setting it up, getting it to work, so many times if I can give them that one email reply or chat reply that gets the app working for them in the way they need it. An hour later, I see their order come through and they're instantly a customer and that's, you know, money in my pocket. And then once they're a customer following up and maintaining that relationship and ensuring that any questions they have down the road get answered, it ensures that when it's time to upgrade to a new version of your app, they're satisfied and they're going to do it. So you have to have pre-sale support and post-sale support. And that's, it's key to your business, at least in the size of business that I run. 
I think one of the other big components that uh, we might sometimes gloss over, but I think we all do it in, intrinsically, is when you're evaluating whether to buy a product, you're making all kinds of determinations as to whether this is a company you want to do business with. And we've already built up a lot of assumptions if we're going to look at a piece of software from Apple or from Adobe or Microsoft. We sort of know what to expect as a baseline. You know, this isn't a virus. This isn't, you know, going to steal all my data. Um, you know, if someone's never heard of your company before and they're coming to your website, they don't have any of that information. And so having a person they can reach out to having, you know, making it very clear that there is a real company behind this website, I think is very important in establishing that validity and that trust. Yeah. As a, as an indie developer, I really own the fact that I'm a one person company and I make that very apparent on my website. I mean, my name is in my company name. So I play up the fact that you're going to get a real person every time because it's just me. But at the same time, I try to make my brand and my website and my customer support as professional looking as possible so that even if people aren't scared off by the idea of dealing with a single solo developer, they still believe before they make that first purchase that they're going to have a trusted company helping them along the way. That's why I have an 800 number so they can, even if I don't answer the 800 number, seeing that on the website instills a vote of confidence in myself when they're looking at it. That's why I put my physical mailing address on the website too. So they know that there's an actual person there. It's not just some fly by night company on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've noticed as well that, you know, we'll get calls or, or emails from people. If we haven't posted a blog post in a month or something asking if we're still in business, um, you know, you wow. wouldn't do that if Apple hadn't updated their website in a while, but I think with indie developers, there's a lot more skepticism for, for good reason, right? We, we all live on the internet. We know that there's a lot of bad people on the internet. So it, it just reminds you that, you know, making it very clear that you're, you're real people and you're here and you're ready to talk to, is important. And your reputation for customer support spreads all over Twitter. I have people all the time thanking me on Twitter for answering their questions within a few minutes. And that encourages other people to take a chance with my software as well. It as they see the does. level of support. It absolutely does. We see that all the time as well. And, and you know, we operate in an industry that's very insular, right? It's a, a fairly small community of video people. There are some main discussion forums that most people in the industry, if they're on a forum, they're going to be on one of this small subset. Um, and so, yeah, often I'll see sort of emails I've sent to a customer reposted in a message thread or uh, people discussing how helpful it was to get a response right away or even other people saying like, oh, just, you know, drop an email to Colin at Divergent. I'm sure he can answer the question for you. Um, yeah. And so it becomes, you know, a way for people to relay that connection out into the, the community in general. And another point is that good customer service is also your first line of defense against refunds. And refunds are going to happen no matter what you do. But if you can follow up with a customer proactively who's just having trouble, but maybe hasn't wanted to bother you with an email yet, if you can solve their problem ahead of time, you're going to stop them from asking for a refund. I think that's very true. One of the things I've noticed, um, you'll often get customers, and this is not a mentality I really understand, uh, but you'll get people who will 
email you and, and this is their first contact with you is requesting a refund saying the software doesn't work, please refund. And you'll look at their record and say, well, you've, you've never emailed us before. Or you've never asked a question. Um, but if you can sort of reply very quickly and just say, you know, we're happy to do a refund, but is this something I could help you with? You know, usually problems are pretty easy to solve. Uh, I would say more often than not, that results in solving what is usually just some confusion or user or something and someone who's much more satisfied. Plus, obviously, you've not had to refund them. Yeah, absolutely. And the key for me is, like you said, being upfront and saying, if you do want a refund, it's no problem. I'm happy to do that. But can we help you first? Right. I will, I will never push it more than one reply, you no. know, um, and, and we do a no questions asked refund policy because again, that goes into the refund as well. Um, you know, we just had a, a case recently where it was a customer where I really wish I could have solved this problem, but it was, you know, something that wasn't in our roadmap and, um, you know, he'd bought the software expecting a feature that didn't exist. And it was a very pleasant exchange and we offered a refund and, he took it and then was like seeing our praise about how wonderful we were to work with, even though he hadn't kept our software. Yeah. And I've had customers ask for a refund, get a refund, and then six months later, come back and buy the product again. Absolutely. So it, it's rare, but it happens. And I think obviously, you know, you need quality software, but I think having a good relationship with customers also makes them much more willing when you do release new software to sort of jump in right away. Uh, when we recently did a, a big release of our edit ready product, we had customers who were sort of buying based on our reputation and not necessarily spending a lot of time evaluating the product. They, they knew that they could trust us and wanted to support us. Yeah. And that's a great place to be in. And you get to that place by carefully growing your reputation for customer service. So what does that actually look like day to day? You know, how, how do you manage it? How have you gone through different transitions? Um, and how much, you know, effort do you have to put into your support? Yeah. For years, it was purely just over email, just through a Google apps hosted email account. And it worked really well because with Google, everything is based around search. So when somebody emails in, I can instantly see a history of our conversations. It's all threaded. It just works. And there's nothing simpler than email. It's great. Um, the problem is, is that it doesn't scale. I'm the only one with my, with that email account. So I'm the only person that can do customer service for the most part. So about six months ago, I finally took the plunge and switched to using actual help desk software. I evaluated a bunch of them. I tried Zendesk for a while. They were great, but I ended up settling with Freshdesk for a number of reasons we can go into later. And so all of my um, customer support email addresses forward into Freshdesk, and then I handle them within their web app or their iPhone app. And then when I reply, it goes straight out to them over email, and it looks like I'm replying just by email. So to the customer, it's still transparent. It doesn't look like I'm doing anything fancy, nothing different. But for me, the main feature I get from Freshdesk is that I can categorize and see over time what the majority of my support is coming in for. I can see, are they questions? Are they bug reports? What products are they talking about mostly? And then I can make decisions of where to focus my efforts on each product based on that, based on those reports I get out of Freshdesk. And so that's been real eye-opening to see that data come through. And do you also, so you also have phone support and then do you also do social media all from within Freshdesk? Yeah, I was using a wonderful company, um, startup company called Respondly. And of course that's respond.ly. 
to handle social media, specifically just Twitter. And they were great. Uh, but they raised their prices. They're like 50 bucks a month now where I was paying nine bucks a month. And Freshdesk doesn't do Twitter quite as nice as Respondly, but it does it well enough that I'm not willing to pay their 50 bucks a month. So I canceled that. So yeah, I proactively get push notifications to my phone anytime somebody mentions my app or at replies one of my products. And I reply on the phone, but I can also reply and see all of the threaded Twitter conversations from within, from within Freshdesk. So that's a really, really nice feature. And they also handle Facebook as well. Nice. Um, and we have on our list here live chat. Do you do that right now? I used to do it when I didn't have a nine to five. I did it all the time. But when I do work, when I do freelance, I'm kind of paranoid about like a coworker or my boss coming to my website and saying that, oh, Tyler is currently online and available for chat while he should be working. So I don't have that on as frequently as I used to. But that was a great support system because customers could instantly get the answer they wanted. And they loved, I mean, just talking to my customers, I know they loved that feature. They loved having that instantaneous support. There was no back and forth. It was just done. Hmm. Interesting. That's not something we've ever tried. I think um, just the, we, we use Zendesk at this point, And I think the um, pricing model means that we don't actually have access to that right now. I'd have to look again. Um, so we started on email just like you. We had moved to Fogbugs for a while yeah. as our support system. And it was sort of fine, but obviously it's not a singularly focused support app. It's um, fog bugs, right? Um, and I mean, it's primarily a bug tracker. Correct? Yeah. And it sort of worked okay in the support role at the time, but it did not have a lot of the sort of customer management features that we wanted in the platform. And so we moved to Zendesk a couple years ago. Um, I could look, we just passed our 10,000th ticket. So um, we use it integrated with Twitter and Facebook and phone and email as well. Um, and it has really nice interfaces out to all of those. I would say, you know, the Zendesk platform in concept is really fantastic. I have been, I would say, pretty frustrated with them in many ways as well. Um, they seem to be a company that wants to do continuous deployment, but doesn't have the continuous integration side quite right. Exactly. That That's one of the reasons I went from Zen to Freshdesk was Fresh seems to be a bit more proactive in building out new features and having new releases. Like I see the interface change once a week and it's usually changing for the better, adding like a small new feature here or there. Whereas Zendesk, the whole three months I was on them, I never saw a single change. I, was, I actually meant like they, they seem to actually roll out a fair number of changes. They're just never tested very well. And so oh, okay. they, they're constantly breaking their application in fairly critical ways, especially their iOS application. Like they've pushed out a number of updates that literally just didn't work, um, which <laughs> does not speak highly of them. Um, they also, I think, have had more downtime than I would like. Um, they're pretty routinely have some downtime, you know, each month of server problems or we deployed a bad patch or something that took down the infrastructure, which I, I just don't expect in a modern web app. No, not at all. Um, in general, though, I mean, I think all of these platforms versus email really do offer the opportunity to have a, a better ongoing relationship with a customer. Um, I really like being able to cross between different modes of communication. So if uh -huh. I get a phone call, 
I can do the phone call, but then say, you know, okay, I need to go offline and look into this for you. I can match their phone number to their, their user account and then follow up via email or something to come in via Twitter and then move to a different form and, and have that continuity. The other thing we do is, um, anytime you fill out a form on our website, whether it's a trial or a, uh, a, a purchase, we push that information into Zendesk so that, uh, when you do call, I can really quickly link you yeah. from your phone number over to your, your purchase. Um, and if you're just asking for your serial number or something, I can do that all from within, within Zendesk, which is really nice. Yeah. I have a custom sales backend that handles all my orders that I built years ago. And with Freshdesk, you actually can write JavaScript plugins that pull in data and put it into the sidebar of the conversation you're having with the customer. So like you, I can see their recent orders, any recent support requests, their serial numbers, everything like that. So being able to integrate with your own systems really makes the whole process seamless and work much, much better. Absolutely. I would say, I mean, I don't know the numbers offhand, but that's a fairly meaningful percentage of our emails is just, I need my key. Um, even though our website has a key lookup, a lot of people will just turn to email or phone yeah. right away. And so being able to just hit a keyboard shortcut and auto reply with their key is pretty, pretty awesome. Do you have any way for people to open tickets with you from within the app itself? Um, not really. So what we have within the app itself is we use uh, hockey for both our mm-hmm. crash reporting and we also use now their feedback platform, um, which unfortunately does not integrate with Zen in any meaningful way. Um, the advantage is you get that in-app chat, which is which is really cool because when someone actually leaves the hockey window open and sends a message, it comes in via email and then I can jump on right away and, and communicate with them. Um, but it doesn't, you know, if I'm offline or something, it doesn't populate a ticket, um, which is unfortunate. And then we also have within the app, a file submission tool, uh, which is custom to our field, which means like, if you go to submit a file, it submits just a small segment of a file, because obviously a lot of our users are dealing with gigabyte files. Um, and that will create a ticket as well as a separate entry in our server side thing that tracks the, uh, the file header and metadata and things. Yeah, that was one of the best decisions I made a few years ago was creating an in-app tool where they can request support. So they can send in a bug report, they can send in a support question or a feature suggestion. And along with that, they can attach a screenshot and they can also attach a backup of all of their app's data and their system configuration files that are relevant to what the app does. And so I'll get that as a ticket into my custom backend system, which gets forwarded into Freshdesk, where it creates a proper ticket. And I have that zip file of the data that I can automatically open up, install on my test machine and see exactly what they're seeing and can diagnose the problem. And that saved so much time over having people go and find a file and email it to me. It's just done and done. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. I mean, you know, we obviously, due to just limited upstream bandwidth and things, can't get full files as often as we'd like. We do have um, a separate system that is integrated with Zendesk where we can generate a unique upload URL for people to use, which gives them an FTP account and a website if they prefer either way to send us larger files. Um, But again, you know, it's hard to ask someone to send us a 30 gig file or something. They just, no one has the bandwidth for that in the U S. Do you offer blog commenting? We do not at this point. Um, We've played with that a little, but we I haven't really ever seen the the cost benefit payoff on that. I turned that on about a year ago and I I don't get very many comments, which is actually a good thing because it's not a very easy way to do support. 
But I do like that customers can occasionally offer something constructive for the post that I've written and can add on to it in a way that another customer may find helpful down the road. What we do have is we use Zen's support portal. Uh, so they have a public facing support yeah. portal, portal you can manage. And we've created separate sections for our different apps where we've pre-populated the knowledge base, but customers can also post threads there. Mm-hmm. And I'm fairly mixed on that. I feel like m- most of the time, the things that are being posted there are things that are better dealt with through a ticket because it's going to require some back and forth or it's Correct. very user specific. Um, and I'm not sure quite how to generate the types of conversations. I mean, we get much more value out of the conversations we have offsite on actual um, sort of product centric forums or other places on the net um, where we're part of the community, but the question isn't necessarily like, I get this message when I click on this thing on with this type of camera. Yeah. I tried Zendesk's and Freshdesk's uh, customer support portals. They were nice. They were feature rich. But I'm just a little too protective of my company's branding. I wanted their support portals to explicitly match what my website looks like and the way I wanted it to work. And none of them offered the full customization to the point that I was satisfied. So like I've always do, I ended up reinventing the wheel and writing my own quick little PHP, you know, frequently asked questions page on my website. And so the benefit of that is that I have total control over searching over formatting over how sections are defined and how products are presented on the website. And as soon as I added and populated these FAQs, my support load drastically dropped. I would really love to run the numbers and see how much lower it is now. But having those FAQs really makes a difference in how much people email you versus how versus them finding the answer themselves. There's also, I would suspect, an SEO approach or you know, an SEO point to that, that having Absolutely. it on your own site, because a FAQ is a great place to have a lot of high value content. Oh, yeah. Um, you, we also do have, you know, FAQ sections for each of our websites or for each of our products, but they're not as built out as um, they could be, I suspect. Um, and and it because we do use the Zen portal, you end up sort of splitting your, your knowledge between the two. Um, but I think the on-site stuff makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So after a customer does buy your product, how long do you continue to support them with Uh, support? Forever. Yeah. Um, You know, and a lot of that is just because it's too much work not to support them forever. Mm -hmm. And we don't see the market for doing support contracts and the sorts of things that a lot of companies within our industry do. I really like being able to offer support forever because it sort of you know, we're not getting a lot of calls from people who bought eight years ago, but when we do, it's kind of nice to not make a big deal out of it and just help them out. And they often return to buy the next version of the product. Absolutely. I think, you know, if people really wanted 24 seven on call support, if there was a market there, that would be a very different conversation about support contracts and things like that. But because we get to decide how much time we're putting into support and, we don't have to make it a, you know, 24 seven operation. I think we're just choosing to be hopeful and to be nice and hope that that pays back. Yeah. And one of the tricks I did about two years ago was I started offering different price points for my apps. So for my primary app, virtual host X, it's $49 for a standard license. And that comes with unlimited customer support forever, you know, standard. 
And then I have a commercial license for $99. It's the same product, the same app, the same features. I'm just simply saying on the website that if you're a business, I would like you to buy the more expensive version because you can probably afford it since you're not a single person. But one perk I do add is I do say you get premium support and you get a dedicated phone number, you get a dedicated email address, where if you contact me through those, you go to the top of the support queue, your guaranteed same day response. And so that's kind of hand-waving magic because I don't have a support load where it really matters if you go to the front of the line. But businesses seeing that, it makes them feel more comfortable. They feel like they're really getting something for the extra money they're spending. And so I kind of feel guilty doing that, but it makes a difference to my bottom line and people seem to enjoy the the, the security they get from doing that. Well, that's a really interesting approach. Did you come up with that on your own or did you see other people doing that? No, that was from, uh, what's the name of the uh, iOS app that shows the 3D view of your layers? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> not Spark Inspector, but... Um, the other one that's like Spark Inspector. It's yeah. made by, by Itty Bitty Apps, I think, in Australia. I can't remember. I can't think of the name right now. But yeah, I saw that on their order page. I thought that was a really clever way of doing that. That is that is a very clever approach. Um, and I think it, you know, again, without making your life more complicated in terms of having to maintain two different products in terms of the code base, you're yeah. able to differentiate without driving the cost up for, quote, normal customers. Yeah. This is going to bug me. i got to look and see who this company is, but please continue. <laughs> well, the next thing I was going to bring up is, um, you know, we've talked about these sort of more traditional types of communication, both synchronous and asynchronous, so phone calls, Twitter, Facebook, email. Um, I'm wondering about some of the things that go a little bit beyond. So, for example, will you ever jump on a Google Hangout with a customer? Will you do screen sharing with a customer to look at their system directly? Or do you offer anything else? Uh, do you ever do in-person support if someone happens to be in your city? Yeah, I've done all of those before. It doesn't happen very frequently, but I have helped somebody in person at a coffee shop who happened to be in Nashville. I have done screen sharing with customers before, and I'm happy to do it. They Customers just very rarely ever request that. So it doesn't happen too often, but I'm happy to when it happens. Yeah, I mean, we use, so we use TeamViewer for our screen sharing a lot of the time because that tends to be pretty low barrier to entry for people to get involved with and the pricing is pretty reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times when it's an issue that is just not going anywhere via email, it makes my life a lot easier from a support perspective and it definitely makes the customer's life a lot easier. You know, occasionally we're having to you know, go in and dig through system folder library stuff or dig through console logs. And it just gets really hard to negotiate that via email or anything asynchronous. Correct. We've also seen, um, because our other product, Scopebox, involves uh, hardware and connections between systems and things, I've occasionally had cases where what made the most sense was to jump on a Hangout where the customer was just basically pointing his camera at his config and <laughs> saying, okay, the signal comes out of this computer here, and here's the cable, and it's going into this box here. And we were actually troubleshooting sort of physical connections via video chat. Wow. And again, you know, if that's what the call takes, I'm not really opposed. I occasionally have sort of wondered about that in terms of the barrier between personal and professional of, well, now you're seeing my home office and things, but customers have never brought it up and I'm not inclined to worry too much. No. 
And it's really amazing because you're never, ever going to get that level of support from a large company like Adobe. It just is not going to happen. Right. And so that that's what that's our weapon against the big companies is our personal touch with customers, I think. So let's talk about the downside of that, because yeah. if you're known as the company that, hey, they jumped on a screen sharing session with me and I saw them poking around and they obviously know everything about computers. Um, and now my Microsoft Word isn't working. Maybe I'll just <laughs> give them a call. You know, I, we certainly get those calls. I assume you do as well or those yeah. emails. How do you deal with that? Be as friendly as possible, but you also have to be firm and simply refer to, refer them to the correct Google search for whatever they're doing. I mean, that's the easiest thing you can do is just show them how to find the support they need themselves. Absolutely. If, it, if it's out of scope, of course. Yeah. I mean, I try and be really honest and say, you know, I'm sorry, I've not dealt with that or, you know, we can't provide that type of support. It does become hard when you deal in this ecosystem where lots of things are interconnected and related. So if a customer used our software to convert a file and they're now, you know, six months down the line and they're trying to burn a DVD of the finished edit and, and, you know, they're running to something that's obviously related to their DVD drive, they can sort of draw a dotted line back to our product. And we have to sort of walk that line. Um, and it's tempting because both of us often know the answers to some of these things. It's tempted, tempting to get involved and become basically support for hire. Yeah. But, but you have to draw the line. Otherwise you'll never get anything else done. Right. Or you need to launch a support for hire business. True. So what about irrational people? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I wrote a blog post a year ago about asshole customers. Um, These are the customers that will email you the first correspondence you have with them. They're angry, calling you names and telling you how much they hate, how much they hate you. And you can, if it's a legitimate support request, you just have to put on a smiley face and deal with it as, and turn them onto your side. But if it's out of scope, I just ignore it. I just let it go into my trash folder. That's something I really struggle with because I think I take it really personally. And mm-hmm. so I have a real hard time ignoring that stuff um, and a hard time not letting it get to me personally. I, I mean, I had a very derogatory tweet about my product today on Twitter and I, there's nothing I could do. I just replied back to him and said, well, let me know if I can help you. And then I favorited his tweet. I mean, just, you know, try and put on a smiling face. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because you feel bad for these people who've oftentimes what I see is people who bought the product, had a problem, sort of went down the entirely wrong path in trying to fix it themselves. And what that meant is that they got themselves angrier and angrier. And they're now coming to you after having already spent two hours trying to troubleshoot it, shoot it the wrong way. And they're angry about all the things that they did wrong, basically. And so you're sort of not getting them at problem one, you're getting them at problem 10. Yeah. And that can be hard. And, and you try and sort of work through the process. Um, I'll sometimes try and, you know, if we're going to move on, if we've solved the issue and we're saying goodbye to each other, essentially, I'll try and maybe say, if you run into a problem next time, just drop us a line right away. Yeah. It's much easier for both of us if we can get looped in right away, but that can be a real challenge. Um, the other side of it is that sometimes you do get genuinely crazy people. <laughs> um, and this isn't like crazy because they're irrational about their product, but you know, we get people who call to tell us about conspiracy theories and, um, you know, 
I had one about like the Facebook CIA conspiracy and how they were trying to steal his data. And, you know, so he couldn't upgrade his OS because if he brought it into the Apple store, they would connect it with the Facebook, you know, just off the rails sort of stuff. And those can be really hard too, because I'm not inclined to be rude to someone like that and say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I have to go goodbye. But they're also genuinely crazy. Yeah. And, and, there's nothing you can do except let them off gently. It's, I mean, you have to draw that line. Yeah. I would suspect it's the sort of thing that people, the first time they get that, or maybe the first 10 times they get that, they're a little surprised uh, to receive a call like that. And if you're just getting into this industry, uh, you need to be prepared for all the different people that exist in the world. I can often tell what I'm getting into simply by the formatting of the email I receive. Like, if punctuation is used correctly, if there are lots of exclamation points, if capitalization is used, if there are weird colors, you can almost intuit how the conversation is going to go by the care they take in their first reply to you. And it's kind of like judging a book by its cover, but after you've been doing this for seven years, you notice patterns. Absolutely. Do you do anything to deal with uh, other languages, non-English language support? Oh, I wish I could. Uh, I occasionally get another language and sometimes I use Google Translate if it if I think it works. Other times I reply back in English and put the burden on them to translate it. I mean, I speak one language. There's really nothing I can do except Google Translate. Yeah, it's the same for us. And it's unfortunate because I, I would like to offer more support. Um, and, and yeah, I'll do the same thing. I'll try Google Translate. And if I can sort of infer the gist, obviously, I think we both do this enough that you can quickly bin most questions into their relevant category. And so yeah. if you can at least get the general sense of it, you can probably answer. I'll always answer in English. I'm never going to send back a Google Translate translation of my response because that's, you know, they can do that if they want, but I don't want to create any confusion that way yeah um but it's hard and i know there are services out there that can help with that but i'm a little skeptical yeah both both of our products yours and mine are so technical i wouldn't trust a third party to have the domain knowledge to be able to respond unless i'm literally giving them the answer and then they're just translating it for me yeah and that becomes again in terms of the cost benefit of offering support, you can yeah. quickly get to a, a case where it's costing you actual money, not just time, but costing you actual money beyond what you've made from the customer. And, yeah. you know, we have to remember that as much as we want to please customers and make everyone happy, the, the bottom line is the bottom line and that we need to eat as well. Yeah. And, and as far as costing you money, I mean, when I give a refund, it costs me $2 yep. and it's, it's not going to break me, but you know, that's $2. And when somebody recklessly buys the app without reading what the app does and evaluating it with a free trial to see if it will work for their situation, and they just buy it, and the next day they ask for a refund, I'm kind of miffed. Like, I wish you could have contacted me ahead of time to see if I could have, if this, if my app will solve your problem. But. Yeah. Even worse are the occasional person who will um, have their credit card company void it. Because oh, that yeah. both costs more, creates a black mark on our record. And, you know, if they haven't contacted us at all and they just went straight to their credit card company, I find that just sort of offensive. Yeah. It, yeah. And you can't do anything about it, but no, it just no. comes with the territory. It absolutely does. So are there any like, what, what, what's your favorite customer service trick 
that really surprises and delights people. Do you do anything out of the ordinary? You know, I, I, I know what you do. And so I feel almost guilty even saying anything because you are so much better at this than, than we are. Um, so no, I don't, I don't know that we really do. Uh, we are just friendly and try and move on, but I think we'd like to uh, hear more about what you do. Okay. So I once saw a talk, I think it was by, um, one of the co-founders of Reddit and the phrase he used about when growing a business is to encourage serendipity. And one of the ideas I got from that was that I live in the U S so mailing a thank you note to one of my customers cost me 41 cents for a stamp. So for a long time, for every order I came through that the person was in the U S I would handwrite them a thank you card on my company stationery hand address it, put it on a stamp and mail it out. And I would get so many absolutely flabbergasted tweets and replies of people posting photos just in awe and in shock that they got a handwritten reply for something they bought on the internet. And for my extra special customers, like people who have bought all six versions of my product over the past 10 years and who have bought other products from me, I'll occasionally just just drop ship them a... Uh, coffee mug with my logo on it. Just anything to keep them reminded of the company and just to say thank you for being a customer for so long. And it really spreads through social media when that happens. That's really awesome. And that's the sort of thing that it honestly has not occurred to me to do. Um, I think crossing that boundary from sort of electronic as my phone rings with a support call, which I will mute for now, um, crossing that boundary from the sort of electronic communication into reality. I, it's just not something that's occurred to me. Um, so do you still do any of that at this point? Hello? Sorry, oh. I was on mute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I go through phases where I do it. I'm not doing it currently right now because I'm out of stationery and I've been too lazy to reorder it. But it takes up a lot of time. I mean, I the the handwritten note I send takes about a minute and a half to write the actual note. And then I have to address it, which is another minute. Then I have to get a stamp and I have to put it in the envelope and take it out to the mailbox. So, you know, it, it takes a, you know, a few minutes, five minutes per order to do every one of these. So it takes some time, but... I go back and forth on whether or not it's truly worth it, but the, but seeing customers delighted by it always makes me feel good. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a valid thing is that it makes us feel better about, you know, as we discussed in our first episode, we're doing this for reasons beyond just revenue. Um, yeah. and if you're making people happy with your product, that's pretty cool too. Yeah. So, uh, Let's go over the tools we use quickly uh, for running your support system from end to end. Like, what is your chain? What products do you use and pay for? So we are mostly using Hockey for or, uh, Zendesk, I should say, for most of our communication. And so that's our social, um, email. We use RingCentral as our primary phone gateway, which actually forwards into Zendesk for support tickets. Uh, and that's mostly because Zendesk can't currently do a phone tree with physical extensions, as in uh, actual handsets that ring at desks. We use Hockey for crash reporting and in-app feedback, plus a custom library for doing file submission from within the tool, and then some various bits of code on the server to tie all that together. Um, we do use Capsule as well to do some sort of customer management stuff, um, and then use MailChimp 
integrated with that um, for doing things like post post sales follow ups. We also one of the things I really like about Zendesk is that we can push from Zendesk right into a GitHub issue, and then when we resolve the issue, we can push that back into the ticket and close the loop with the customer. So exactly. that integration's been really nice. Um, I think that's about it for us. What about you? Yeah, so very similar. Did email for years and years and years. Just recently switched to Freshdesk. So that handles all of my social interactions for any ones that I don't get to via my phone. Um, All my customer emails come into Freshdesk. I reply there. I also have the ability to link uh, tickets in Freshdesk to tickets in my bug tracker. So that when I resolve a bug, I can pull up a list of all the customers who experienced it and then personally email each one, letting them know, hey, go download the new version. It fixes what you're looking at. I also use Hockey for crash reporting. Um, I have that little in-app library that lets people uh, submit questions directly from within the app. Um, I use MailChimp to handle my mailing lists. Um, I send out a few emails a year. I'm trying to get more proactive about that. And I'm using this wonderful new company called GetDrip.com. And that sends drip-based emails to customers. And so what happens is when somebody gives me their email address to download the software the first time, it will send them the immediate email with download instructions plus FAQs and a getting started guide. And then over the next week or two, it sends them three or four more getting started emails, which introduce them to various features of the product. And then if any time within that they purchase the software, it automatically stops those getting started emails and pushes them into an existing customer list. And then a month after they purchase, they get a follow-up email just checking to see if everything is going smoothly and how they're enjoying the product. And I get tons and tons of wonderful feedback from that final follow-up email. Um, and yeah, those are the, that's basically my workflow. That's very cool. And I'm going to have to check out uh, Get Drip because we, we took the idea from you and we started doing those sorts of follow-ups uh, maybe six months ago using just some custom code on our server. And the response from that's been great. And it really is that chance to intervene early in issues because we're yeah. being proactive. So if someone bought the software and then ran into an issue and you send them an email, so often they will write back and say, boy, I'm really frustrated. Thanks for reaching out to me. And that's a great conversation to start. And they oftentimes think you really are emailing them personally. Yep. And the other email I do automatically that I haven't mentioned is um, if they download the software, I get their email address. And if I haven't seen a purchase come through after like three weeks, an automatic email goes out that says something like literally, hey, saw you downloaded a couple weeks ago, but you haven't purchased yet. Is there anything I can help you with? And I get tons and tons of great feedback from that of people going, oh, my goodness, I completely forgot to try the software after I downloaded. Thanks for reminding me. And so that really helps convert people over to customers. Yeah, that definitely seems like the kind of email marketing that or, or email communication that is valued by both parties. Mm-hmm. So cool. Well, um, I think we've made a good case for support as a valuable tool for indies beyond just uh, sort of the, the very basics of you know, dealing with bugs and things, but actually building your reputation. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a key to your business.